0: This is our 1492 moment. Uh, Only it's not discovering the new world in a physical sense. It's discovering a new age in a technological sense. And unfortunately, what's been happening worldwide to a degree is very much what happened after 1492, Uh, a kind of Luddite reaction, a withdrawal uh, into the past, and a lack of enthusiasm of taking the risks uh, that one has to do to embrace the future.
1: That was Jean Ludwig, former Comptroller of the Currency and founder and CEO of Promontory Financial Group one of the foremost consulting and regulatory advisory firms for banks and financial services around the world. As a former top bank regulator and guru for the financial services industry, Gene has helped shape and respond to the evolution of fiscal, monetary, and banking policy for more than three decades. For this special fintech edition of Bloomberg Law's Code and Conduit, We sat down with Gene in his downtown D.C. offices to get his perspective on a controversial proposal from his former agency, the OCC, to let financial technology companies become more like banks, as well as how regulators can encourage more lending and economic development, and his views on free higher education and the need for policymakers to embrace technology and really lean in to fixing systemic issues so that average Americans aren't left behind. Let's get to it. Gene, thank you.
0: Lydia, it's good to be here. It's
1: nice to see you again. We're going to get to some of these issues related to financial inclusion. I know you care a lot about them, but first I have a burning question for you. All righty. Bitcoin or Ethereum?
0: (laughs) Well, it's an exciting area, isn't it? Twenty years ago, Bob Rubin asked me to take a look at the question of whether or not there would be electronic money in the world. And what I said after I looked at it around the world was that it was definitely going to be the future. But it wouldn't happen for 20, 25 years. And we're just about at that line. <laughs> this is going to transform the world. Uh, whether governments end up issuing these kinds of uh, tokens or otherwise participating in this marketplace, which I believe they will, uh, or not, uh, clearly it's the direction of the future. But as to which one, <laughs> I have no dog in the fight. All right, <laughs> Let everyone. And either we're in tussle, and the best best one wins.
1: <laughs> All right, that's a great answer. So, what do you think of the OCC's and Treasuries' uh, support for a national fintech charter, for this special purpose charter for fintech companies uh, to become regulated by the OCC, uh, have a single regulator instead of multiple? state regulators. Uh, Do you think that this is uh, a risk to the financial system? Do you think that this is going to help consumers if some fintechs pursue a charter? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Great step forward. Hugely positive. And let me explain why. Uh, First we have a federal system. So the notion that you have a federal charter and a state charter Uh, uh, available available to you is long since blessed in law from 1860 on and it's the nature of our federalism. So uh, in that sense it just simply reflects the nature of financial regulation for what is it 180 years. Um, The second thing is that um, the more we can take the unregulated financial system and put it under the umbrella of a regulated financial system, the better off everybody is from the standpoint of safety and soundness and from the stand for for the individual institutions and for the country as a whole and from the standpoint of the provision of services in a fair way. Regulation isn't perfect but you know it tends to have those guardrails to some degree around the system that make things better. That's been our experience since 1860 when we started to have serious regulation. Um, it's not perfect, but it, but it is a plus, plus. and um, the notion that one would allow this to happen and do it voluntarily has a, you know, a nice uh, tone to it, not requiring it, uh, and I think one's going to find over time for those folks who decide to have national charters that uh, they will meet higher standards, that will be over time subject to serious amounts of supervision and regulation and examination, which will benefit the system as a whole.
1: So those are indirect benefits to consumers. Do you see any potential direct benefits to consumers in terms of access to capital, depending on the types of fintechs that might want this type of charter? I mean, what's your outlook there?
0: Well, it legitimizes what's happening, uh, as a matter of fact, anyway, um, I, I, but, but, but the federal agencies do care about and have rules that, you know, even if they don't strictly apply, are basically part of the ecosystem, uh, for example, CRA and CRA obligations uh, that, um, that help, uh, I think, uh, put guardrails around the system for consumers as well. Okay.
1: In your role as uh, a regulator and having been through a lot of economic highs and lows, um, you've helped shape policy and you recently wrote an op-ed. Uh, where you talked about despite this great economic pro- productivity uh, record or fairly low unemployment a booming stock market, uh, the average American's financial picture is not so rosy. And you actually wrote, we need the Federal Reserve and other government bodies to use new measures that bring the economic reality facing our country into focus. What do you mean?
0: Well, Lydia, the, the measures that we've been using which are aggregates, uh, have been utilized more or less for the last 50, 75 years. And after World War II, when incomes were more homogenous and geographies were more homogenous from an income perspective, they worked reasonably well, creaky, but worked. Today we're in a very different reality. Uh, As a result of globalization, technological change, there are a whole lot of different reasons the aggregates uh, really uh, present uh, a misleading, or at least not fulsome perspective. Uh, you know, let me sort of summarize it in this this way. If you go into a bar in Washington DC or New York City and you take a census, the mean income may be 75,000, 100,000, 200,000, depends what bar you go into. Yep. But if Bill Gates walks into one of those bars and you take a a census and you say, my God, the average now is $10 million per person per year, somebody might say, it's going up. We're all better off. Uh, That's the equivalent of the GDP problem. It's all going up. But it's not going up for everybody. It's going up for Bill Gates. (laughs) And accordingly, while it's accurate, that's what the mean is when he's at the bar, it, it's misleading, and it's not helpful in terms of identifying what, the, what one level of reality is.
1: What's a better metric?
0: Well, I think, I think, I'm not suggesting we throw out the aggregate metrics entirely, I think they do tell us something, but I think we need much more targeted, both geographic, uh, uh, socioeconomic uh, uh, information that's regularly put out and emphasized, so we know, for example, how are people doing in Cleveland? How are they doing in Indianapolis? How are they doing in Alabama? Um, how are folks doing, uh, you know, with incomes in the median or lower income uh, or even upper middle income, as compared to other um, uh, groupings in the United States?
1: So, if you had that sort of more granular information about local communities, how do you think that could or should shape, you know? Monetary policy, regulatory policy. What's your vision?
0: Well, first, uh, as I use a doctor anal- analogy, uh, you gotta you know examine the patient and have a sense of where it hurts, you know, and that's step one. So we've got to have the data so we know exactly what areas are hurting and are they getting better or are they getting worse? So we can look at those uh, areas that are disadvantaged. In terms of what we do, my suspicion is, it is not a one-size-fits-all set of solutions. That's, uh, the disaggregation suggests that in part. Uh, uh, But I also think there are broader national policies we could have that would, uh, for the short and long term, be beneficial to us. Uh, Having said that, as I say, there's there's a, a great deal, in a great country like ours, as large as it is, there's a great deal about those solutions that have to be tailored for the Geographic areas and the uh, socioeconomic groups and the ethnic groups that exist in those geographies.
1: Well, I'd like to touch on a program that you helped uh, spearhead when you were a comptroller in the mid 90s during the Clinton administration, the Community Reinvestment Act. Um, how do you feel like that's working and what lessons did you learn or take away when you helped sort of reform that program? You know, as we're moving into a new phase where it's looking at additional changes?
0: Um, I'm happy to say the CRA has been a huge plus for America and the changes we made demonstrably helped in that regard. If you just simply look at the amount of money that has been utilized to help low and moderate income Americans pre the uh, changes in the regulations and after the changes, the numbers are dramatically higher after the changes. Uh, having, Having said that, nothing lasts forever and the world moves on and there are issues today uh, which the government's now uh, proposing to address which makes all the sense in the world to address because it's 20 years later. I mean an example of that is um, is again geographic in nature. Uh, the, when CRA was passed I think 1977 is the year but in any case uh, when I was uh, reforming it about 1994 Branches were still, branch Mm banks, Branches of banks were still the delivery mechanism predominantly. Today we're looking at cell phones, we're looking at all kinds of different kinds of mechanisms for delivery of financial services that are really national in scope. And so many of the financial companies that are emerging are looking at a marketplace that is national in scope, not geographically limited. The, The way the rules were written and the way the statute reads in part, it's, it's focused on where the physical locations are. And accordingly, there's a disproportionate amount of CRA activity around the headquarters um, uh, uh, you know, locations. That doesn't make sense if, in fact, the enterprise is really doing its business nationally. And so there needs to be changes that really reflect uh, uh, the modern uh, uh, world in which we live.
1: Now, where would that leave community banks that really are you know, closely tied to their communities that don't have even necessarily a statewide footprint um, in terms of level of competition with some of these online lenders and and larger regional and national banks?
0: Uh, Lydia. obviously, and it's a very good question, a very, very good question. One has to deal with this in a, I mean, the rules will end up being reasonably complex if they're going to be fair. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm a big believer in simplification, but there's only so much simplification you can do in a a nation of, what is it, 300 million people and stretch coast to coast. Right. We're going to have to have the community banks recognized for what they do geographically, not nationally. But we're going to have to have rules tailored for other kinds of enterprises to reflect their own businesses and their contribution in this area.
1: So one of the issues that seems to be coming to the fore here is that different agencies are considering different ways of uh, conducting CRA evaluations and sort of developing that metric for how banks can meet their requirements. Uh, one is your former agency, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, um, and the other is the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Um, and that's sort of this this question that you got to, you know, should branches be included in assessment areas? So. Do you think that there needs to be harmonization among the agencies? Do you think they'll get there or can, you know, what can you achieve if they don't agree?
0: Well, I think there should be harmonization. Uh, It's not easy. (laughs) I did it in my time. And uh, we had somebody appointed from each of the agencies to head this up. Uh, We went around the country and had hearings. Uh, As I remember, there were six or seven in major locations in the United States and had the public come in and, and it was all day hearings. Uh, and we ended up working together and understanding the problem together and then hammering out a set of joint rules. The reason I think that's so important is that um, it, it just differences between the agencies add uh, complications that really at the end of the day are more um, uh, more dislocation than they do benefit and, and you know, for some institutions they actually have big institutions have the three charter types. They'll have a Fed member bank regulated primarily primarily at the federal level by the Fed. Uh, they'll have a state chartered non-member bank regulated by the FDIC, and they'll have a national bank regulated by the Comptroller's Office. Trying to deal with all those rules, regulations that, that may conflict is a, is a nightmare, and we shouldn't allow that to happen. I think Uh, We have very fine people heading these agencies. They can certainly get together and hammer out a set of rules and compromises that will work and will be coherent across the different uh, bank regulatory
1: agencies. So just one more question on this point. You know better than most, you know, the point of the CRA is to help develop businesses and encourage economic inclusion and and expansion uh, and help people. Reach into the mainstream financial system and, and develop, uh, you know, whether it's their their families, their communities, their their businesses. What do you see happening if we don't get to this sort of harmonization quickly? Because you've highlighted these other issues that are, you know, persistent with wage stagnation and, and access to capital that are affecting our social and economic system.
0: Well, it hurts. Um, I, I, I laud the controller for taking up this issue. I think he's, it's good to do that. It's a hard job, uh, I, I, and I respect these other folks, and I think they will work to come to a harmonized result. But to the extent they don't, uh, it, it uh, you know, decreases the likelihood that we're going to be as effective as we should in these uh, difficult communities, um, which is very unfortunate. Uh, so uh, you know, I'd encourage a focus on this. Uh, and I'd encourage harmonization on this.
1: Would you disagree with my characterization of the CRA and its goals? How would you put it? Well, the CRA
0: is a very complex um, rule actually for actually in the statutes. It's only a few lines. It's not, it's not very complex to read it, but it is very complex in its application um, and its history. It was originally set up to be a, an anti-redlining statute in 1977. The problem back then was genuine amounts, huge amounts of lending discrimination in our, nature, in our nation. And there were entities back then that literally at the table would draw a red line about, around areas of the community that were where the low and moderate income people live, often people of color, and they just wouldn't do any business there. So they'd, they'd exclude them. And so the CRA was set up fundamentally to avoid that problem. Uh, there were initially some bells and whistles tied on in terms of the importance of small business uh, and, and farm lending, which are in the statute. Um, I, since that time, more complex financial uh, activities have become important. Um, investment has become a bigger part of our financial scene and um, and of course uh, with the uh, diminution of branches, particularly in low and moderate income areas, they've become important as part of a, a real financial experience. When I did the reforms, that part of it was obvious. And we did the best we could, given the statute we had, to uh, make the statute relevant in terms of investment and financial inclusion in terms of the provision of other financial services uh, without torturing the statute too much. But one's dealing with a statute that in and of itself is um, uh, uh, you know, now 40 years old or so, 50 years old, and so it takes a little bit of interpretation to make it relevant.
1: Okay. I want to turn to another point you raised, the, the role of technology disrupting the banking industry and the financial services sector. Um, the Treasury recent, recently came out with a big fintech report. Uh, making a lot of recommendations to again help uh, boost economic productivity, uh, improve financial inclusion. Are there any policies in there that you think are best addressed to uh, help low and moderate income families?
0: Well, the, the, certainly the most controversial one is the uh, the provisions that deal with payday lending, and. Um, that, that is one of the most, um, you know, can, an area of great consternation uh, at, for anybody in finance because uh, there are strong views uh, in many camps. Some, uh, uh, you know, I'm thinking of one community activist whose view is that one should not allow any lending uh, to uh, low income Americans because they get hooked on loans that they have to repay at higher rates and uh, they can't afford to do it and so we shouldn't be lending money at all. Uh, I'm not of that view, but that's a legitimate view of somebody who cares about the well-being of low and moderate income people. Uh, Other folks are in the let a thousand flowers bloom and and it is better to have uh, regulated entities like banks make payday loans uh, uh, than it is to let um, non-regulated entities that are likely to be more piratical uh, do it uh, or not do it or outlaw the practice entirely because then you have uh, 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 criminals involved because people need finance. So it's a very hard area. I myself am very sympathetic to the notion that low and moderate income people should not be paying um, uh, rates of interest that are disproportionately higher than every other American but, it, but it's, it's complex because smaller dollar loans are harder to make and they cost more to make per loan, so that increases the cost. And for low and moderate income people, the, just the history is there's a greater chance of default and, and that means they're, they can be riskier. Um, working on this area so that one you know, works on the interest rate differential so one can treat low and moderate income people fairly, and make credit available when it's needed is an area that is hard and necessary and it's important for us to focus on it and address these questions uh, straight on. Otherwise, we're gonna do great disservice to people who most need a hand up. Um, but they're hard, they really are hard. Um, uh, the fact that the Treasury is addressing them and asking these questions and raising it, I think is fundamentally a good thing because opening the debate is a good thing. Now I myself am a big believer in community development financial institutions and I'm not a huge fan personally of payday lending uh, but um, I, I think one of the ways that we can really advance the ball here is to put more emphasis on uh, community development financial institutions designed to address specifically the problems of low and moderate income Americans.
1: Well, so. Treasury's made this recommendation. The OCC's actually issued uh, a bulletin to banks encouraging them to get back into small-dollar lending, typically consumer loans that are less than $5,000. I think the big question is, do you think banks are going to go there? Are they going to be willing to take that risk, especially when there's a lot of competition from the payday lending industry, online lenders? Is it going to be an attractive market for them?
0: Some will and some won't, Lydia. I think uh, some will be very wary and say, "Well, that's fine for now, but you know, once uh, you know there's uh, uh, notoriety about abuses, the regulators will come down on people hard." Uh, uh, others will say, "No, this is an area I can really handle and deal with in a way that is fairer and and uh, do well economically." So I think you'll see. You know a variety of different practices, uh, but it is a very, very hard area because, as I say, we haven't cracked the nut of being able to have loans that are small in size and not cost a disproportionate amount to make on a safe basis. That ups the cost and also to differentiate um, as well as uh, one hopes one will be able between folks who are not going to be able to repay. And others that have. This goes to a bigger point that, if it's all right with you, I'd like to make. Cut me off if it's ruining your go interview. For it. Finance, at the end of the day, is a part of the issue here. It is, I like to think of it as the oil that helps make the engine go, and the engine doesn't go without the oil. But it is a lubricant for the society. If it's better oil, the engine goes better. If it's not so good oil, it doesn't. So finance is important and how good it is is important, but it's not the engine. And um, in the United States right now, uh, we have a problem not so much with the oil. We actually have quite a robust and diverse financial system. Not perfect, but but robust and diverse. The problem really is with the engine itself. Um, And that's why one sees this tremendous decline in the well-being of middle and lower income Americans. Uh, and those issues have to be addressed. It, one can't get loans repaid if people don't have good jobs. <laughs> and um, one can't save if one doesn't have enough money uh, that one earns to be able to save. So uh, you know, our fundamental issues, it seems to me, are uh, certainly not just financing, but maybe not even predominantly financing in terms of right now dealing with low and moderate income difficulties.
1: So you're saying they're structural?
0: There are, there are serious structural problems.
1: What are the parts of the engine that need fixing?
0: Well, clearly we've got an educational mismatch, uh, uh, I, and that's pretty obvious in the numbers. There are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, I'll bet millions of jobs which are being unfilled right now um, because the requirements for the technological sophistication Uh, are such that uh, people aren't uh, prepared to be able to handle those jobs. On the other hand, um, uh, so so we we need an educational system that allows people to address them. Uh, We also, uh, it seems to me, uh, need to fix a lot of problems in America badly, uh, like our infrastructure, in in a lot of different ways. Um, That'll both provide jobs and also um, uh, I hope encourage the kind of, of work that is not technologically sophisticated necessarily, but is both needed, highly respectable, and I think in America, if I may say so, we, we do not respect enough the um, uh, everyday work that makes our system go and uh, you know deserves every bit as much uh, credit and respect as the doctor, the lawyer, uh, the uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneur.
1: So you've highlighted the parts uh, that you think need to be looked at, but you know, you're not really saying something new. I mean, politicians campaign pretty much every season on better jobs, better education, fix our infrastructure. I mean, these are, these are motifs that we hear raised frequently. So what's it going to take to actually get Congress or to get policymakers to address them?
0: Good, good for you, Olivia. I think that, that is that is right, that a lot of the things that I have come up with in terms of solutions to date are not particularly zippy or new. Uh, actually, I think that, in fact, um, there is uh, you know, a level of, of new that we've really got to think through, and I'll explain that in one moment. Um, but the fact of the matter is we need unified, coherent, bipartisan leadership. To drive this forward, when, when I came to office in uh, 1993, uh, I, I, I had the controversial um, uh, Senate vote in terms of my confirmation of 99-0. <laughs> it was a time at which both parties worked together, and the finance committees of the Congress were, uh, uh, you know, addressed issues uh, in a um, substantive way. And there was obviously differences of views. There always are, but it was a time of much less uh, partisan uh, bickering than there is today. I think that's essential for the future, and I think it's essential to have leadership that drives us in the nature of doing things together, not apart. Uh, So you know, know, we might say, uh, you know, one aspect of the problem that isn't working well is our political process, because it's not getting done the things that you and I, I think, would agree are obvious, right? You know, potholes in the streets and bridges falling down and airports that look like third world nations airports, etc, 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 you know, are obviously in need of fixing and they produce good middle-class, upper-middle-class jobs. Um, Education is more complex and of course it's local by nature, so it's, it's more complex. But the, but the part of this I think that is new, that again, I don't have a practical snap-your-fingers um, uh, solution to yet, but I hope over time will, and I care a bit about this, I'm gonna sponsor a symposium uh, with the Dean of the Yale Law School this coming year to try to have a sharper focus on these issues, um, is um, is this, uh, the um, in my view, where we are in history is equivalent to 1492. This is our 1492 moment. Uh, Only, it's not discovering the new world in a physical sense. It's discovering a new age in a technological sense. And unfortunately, what's been happening worldwide to a degree is very much what happened after Uh, 1492—a kind of Luddite reaction, a withdrawal uh, into the past, and a uh, you know lack of enthusiasm of taking the risks. Uh, that one has to do to embrace the future. I mean, a good example of the reverse is what President Eisenhower did in the 1950s. So we come out of World War II with the highest uh, per capita uh, debt in the history of the United States. I think even till today. There was was more uh, federal debt and state and local debt per capita than at any time, I think, in our history, but at any time in a very long period. And what did Eisenhower do? He did the Highway Trust Fund. And we invested heavily on our highways and our schools and our future uh, because there was a sense of optimism and embracing the future in a way that, in America, we were coming off an optimistic period after World War II, having having won World War II, in a way that we are not uh, addressing these problems today. And recognizing that this is a moment of great transformation globally and that we have to um, reach out and embrace that future. I think it's, it ultimately will happen, but the question is how much pain before it happens. At the moment, we're not doing that. We're um, retreating into old nostrums and old fears.
1: So you talk about embracing or, or moving toward, leaning in maybe to this watershed moment of technological change. Um, where? How do you see that going? What does that embrasure look like?
0: Well, let let me give you one highly controversial uh, thought that is controversial uh, among the parties and with very few folks who would agree with me. (laughs) (laughs) I believe every youngster from whatever economic background who is able to get an education and wants to do it seriously should be getting it for free. It is absolutely in the interest of the United States to make sure that everybody who can advance themselves and grasp opportunity have that fair opportunity. It's essentially what the country's sort of uh, core values are. Uh, The notion that it's becoming dramatically more expensive for youngsters to be able to reach their dreams and go to college and, and, and achieve social mobility is mad, particularly at a time when technological sophistication is more important. And, and, and one statistic, which is uh, directionally correct, don't hold me to the exact uh, 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 number, but directionally correct, between 1970 and, uh, and roughly today, the increase in mean income uh, in real terms, the average person's increase in income is roughly 4.8%. Um, the increase in educational costs is 117%. Um, the notion we're going to basically solve all those problems with loans is, is, in my view, crazy. It doesn't work economically because if one's going to have a middle-income job, having got an education that helps participate actively in the middle class, the United States, but but you know you don't have a job that's enough to pay for food and um, and uh, health care. By the way, the other statistic is between 1970 and and uh, and today uh, food is up 58% roughly and and uh, healthcare up about 52% 50. cost,
1: so cost of living dramatically, is dramatically yeah. yeah. right
0: so if you if you earn money you still can't live we've not solved the problem so so you know uh, and and burdening people with additional debt for educational reasons i think is completely crazy it's it's actually the opposite of what we ought to be doing we ought to be encouraging people to reach and have a Chance a fair chance of reaching. Now that's, as I say, uh, controversial within both parties. <laughs> so um, uh, and and um, uh, but but uh, I really believe it's a, a you know big part of the necessary change that we have to have.
1: Some of these structural changes that you're yeah. talking about. Anything you want to add that I haven't asked you about?
0: No, it's been it's been a comprehensive. Uh, read, I'm glad we did this. This this is a. a a terrifically challenging time uh, for America and actually the rest of the world. You can see the tensions that are growing up in Europe and other countries because the technological uh, and uh, uh, changes that we're living through, uh, which are exciting and give us great opportunity to solve problems that uh, uh, we couldn't solve before. Uh, that's real and it causes a certain amount of disruption and dislocation and we've got to address them uh, on a national basis for sure, but on a global basis. But we've got to get our heads from looking down and start looking up. These technologies allow us the opportunity to solve cancer, to solve other dread diseases, to, to have people live better lives uh, than we have been able to live before, uh, to, uh, to really reach the stars. That, that's where we're going. and uh, and embracing these things and figure out how to deal with them is a challenge. Every generation uh, has had a challenge, particularly in America, right? This is our pioneer moment uh, and we got to get on the buckboards uh, and start uh, moving out uh, with a sense of optimism and deal with our problems and not look down at the ground and and fail to deal with them because if we don't deal with the problems in a forthright fashion, I, I fear they will deal with us.
1: Reach for the stars.
0: Reach for the stars. Thank you, Gene. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for tuning in to Bloomberg Law's Code & Conduit. For more on this story, fintech news, or for the other topics we cover, visit us at www.bna.com and sign up for a free trial or check out all of our podcasts at Code & Conduit SoundCloud page. This episode was hosted by me, Lydia Bayoud, and produced by Nico Anzalata. You can find me on Twitter at E-L-L-E-B-E-Y-O-U-D.